Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, it's not really different to how we think about drugs or medicines. They're chemicals and all the neurotransmitters in our brain, which are chemicals. So everything's a, a chemical. We've just dumbed it down to think of food as calories and, and saturated fat and not much else. But also, the logic of that is that food is also medicine. Absolutely, yes. It's both poison and medicine. It's make a futile resolution time again, often starting with food and drink. Maybe it's no sugar for a year or less meat or no wine or fast a day a week or eat nothing but lobster. But unless you understand a bit of the science of what you consume and what it does for you, your action is likely to be pointless or worse. But there is someone who can help you out here, who knows things like... Most of our immune cells are actually in our gut, talking to our gut microbes all the time. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the new science of eating well... In recent years, there's been a lot of talk about the health of our nation, and most of it has been pessimistic. We don't eat well. For example, obesity, according to a recent report by the World Health Organization, has reached epidemic proportions. The public health cost is catastrophic. And obesity is only one of our food-related problems. The tragedy is that so many of us eat and drink the wrong things when the right things are easily available. It's a matter of understanding what they are and what they do. My name's Tim Spector. I'm a professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London. I also have a, a job part-time as a co-founder of the nutritional science company Zoe. And I'm also an author of popular science books. The last three have been on nutrition and gut health, and the last is Food for Life. Right, which I actually reviewed for The Times, and a very good book it is too. Now, Tim, a few years ago, something quite traumatic happened to you, which set you thinking. Can you tell us what that event was, how it came about, and then we'll talk about what it led to? Around March 2011, I'd been doing some ski touring with my wife and four friends and a ski guide on the Austrian-Italian border. 
it had been going very well. The last day, we'd been staying in a hut at 3,000 metres, fairly comfortable but high. We had a six-hour climb to reach this peak. It was walking on skis, going uphill. Got to the top, and just as I got there, I started to feel a bit giddy and unwell and suddenly a bit tired. It was a cloudy, slightly snowy day and really had to ski down to the village, which took about an hour and a half or so. And I was falling on my way down. Something I couldn't turn in one direction. I didn't really understand why until I got to the bottom and sort of the ski guide pointed out this tree with some nice squirrels on it, picturesquely. And, I, and he said, look at those two squirrels. And I saw four of them. So then I knew I had a bit of a problem. As a doctor, I knew there was really sort of three main causes of that, brain tumour, multiple sclerosis, or a stroke. Those were your three options, you thought? They were the three commonest things that we all learn in medical school. Went home the next day, got a scan. Well, back to the UK. Back to the UK, got a brain scan over the weekend. Couldn't see anything. I consulted several experts, and it turned out I'd have a, a small occlusion. It's like a mini-stroke. They don't really know the cause of it, but in me, it also put up my blood pressure. It was a really important time for re-evaluation of my life. My father had died, age 57, of a heart attack. And what was running through my mind was that there was me at early 50s. Suddenly, I felt my, you know, I was on a limited warranty. My life could end, and I had to do something about it, both health-wise, but also focus on perhaps the important things in life. Tim was, and I must stress this, was a very healthy 50-something-plus when all this happened. I mean, he was trekking up mountains on skis in the Alps and then spending an hour or so descending. But it made him think, if his fitness had been fine, was something else the problem? Most of my work had been around genes and genetic determinism. And I think this was in line with a lot of the the thoughts of the genetic revolution and how it was all going to change everything and just have a simple genetic test and it would tell you exactly what to do and we'd all be fine, which now is all in dust and we don't have that. And we've gone back to probably where we were before the genetic revolution. If we change our environment, we can actually make a huge dent across all aging and chronic diseases. You identified what we eat and what we put into ourselves as being a significant factor in our creation of our own health environment. That came with my research. It it wasn't an aha moment. (laughs) And that switch was also made because around that time, I discovered gut microbes. Gut microbes. We'll come to that very soon. But I wanted to understand what food had meant for the Spectre family when Tim was growing up in a middle-class North London suburb in the 1960s and 70s. It was meat and two veg. We were often had things out of cans that weren't particularly good. My favourite lunch I used to cook myself as a sort of teenager was ravioli in a can. I remember those ravioli in a can. And there was that cheese, super cheesy sauce one that um, <laughs> uh, God knows what was in it. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a great diet. One for breakfast. What was my breakfast? When I was young, it was masses of sugar. It was Frosties. And uh, I wasn't imbibed with then this great idea that food was essential for health. 
And the only time really that was mentioned by my father, who was a, an expert medical researcher, the only time he got interested in, in diet was when I was looked, I was about to fail an exam and he'd give me a steak the night before. He had a theory that um, high proteins, good quality meat was essential for brain function. It's which, straight from the plate to your head. Which he was completely wrong about. Can you sketch briefly for me what your journey was to writing about food and dieting? My writing career started as a medical student when I wrote a very small piece in The Lancet about drinking coffee and risk of cancer. Oh. And I went to the library and looked up every country's coffee consumption and the, how much cancer the, of the pancreas they were getting. And there was a clear correlation. So I published that great boost to my career, but it was complete rubbish. <laughs> it gave me the taste for that writing an article getting it published you know pat on the back idea so I, I knew that's what I wanted to do so very early I, I steered my course towards writing papers publishing and that he did in addition Tim has now published three books about food and what we eat he also became somewhat of a household name during the pandemic as the company he co-founded created an app the Zoe app where people could upload their symptoms in a bid to help us better understand COVID. I was one of four million plus people who signed up. Now, the latest book Tim has written is Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well. And one thing you certainly get from it is he's not a fan of the idea of dieting. The D word, we try not to mention it. I find it difficult every time now because it's part of our language and we... Other languages don't have that similarity between reducing your food to lose weight and what you eat shouldn't have the same word, but they do in English. So I'm absolutely against crash diets. My number one enemy is calorie counting. We found that it's failed totally to help anybody lose weight sustainably. And it's the main reason that we eat so much junk food and ultra processed food because it's all hiding behind this calorie label. So, yeah, I could go on for hours about why I hate calorie counting okay. and diets. We'll bank the hatred of it and so on, because actually the truth is, as far as I'm concerned, that you have a much more interesting way of looking at food. You've written a new book recently. Why did you want to write this one? People coming up to me all the time and saying, I like bread. Which bread do I choose? What about tinned tomatoes? Are they any good for me? What do I pick? What's healthy? What's good together? What little tips can you give me that's going to be small nudges that are going to help me every day for the rest of my life? And in a way about thinking about food in a totally new way that isn't about calories, fats and sugars. The previous books hadn't given all that detailed practical guide to how to look at food. I reviewed your book and it seemed to me that there were two parts to it, one of which we will come on to a little bit later, which is precisely what some of the tips are. And they are incredibly helpful. The other one is this basic understanding, which you've written about before, but which you write about again in this book, about the microbiome. 20 years ago, I'd never heard of a microbiome. So I'd like you just to explain what it is and the essential factor of the fact that yours is not the same as mine. The microbiome is the community of microbes, which are microscopic bugs that live inside our intestines, predominantly in the lower part of the intestines, the colon. They form a collective mass 
the weigh is about the same as our brain, several pounds in weight. Of, of bacteria? Yes. So there are hundreds of trillions of them, about the same as there are cells in our bodies. We're half bacteria, half human. Every time we go to the toilet, we become more human because we lose about half of them. The way to think about them is a virtual organ in your body. But this organ is essentially a giant pharmacy because each of these bugs is capable of making chemicals for us. And you combine them all together, you've got the world's best pharmacy providing vitamins, neurotransmitters, chemicals that help our immune system, all kinds of things that keep us going. And they need to be fed. And they're fed from foods that reach all the way down to our gut, which is whole foods, plants, and fiber. And that's really the, the essence of them, that if you understand that the gut microbiome is essential for our health, you need to see it in the same idea as we think of our immune system. Most of our immune cells are actually in our gut talking to our gut microbes all the time. That's why having a healthy gut microbiome is crucial for our immune cells. That means we can fight cancer, we can fight infections, in a way fight aging, and we have all kinds of other general repair mechanisms in our body. We've lost perfect microbiome. We had perhaps uh, 200 years ago in the human race, and they still have it in hunter-gatherers and developing countries, but we've lost 50% of the good guys, which means our pharmacy is much weaker than it was. You've used the analogy in the book of the microbiome as a garden. In other words, it has its own ecology, it has its own plants in it, which we then treat to various substances to help it grow or not to grow. And then the plants then have an effect upon us. They produce their own equivalent of pollen or mulch or whatever it is that they they do. Now, what one of the things that's very striking about what you said is you, all that could be true and all our microbiomes would essentially be the same. But that's not the case. So can I ask you first, do they start off the same when we emerge into the world? Well, they do because there's no microbes when we emerge. So they're, no. they're completely sterile. Really? Yes. So we're born sterile. And the reason the birth process is so mucky with blood and vaginal fluid and urine and poo is for that reason, in every mammal, is to introduce gut microbes into the gut. And so those microbes make their way into the gut. The ones that are, were evolved to, to live there do well and the others disappear. And we can't really survive without them. Those first microbes that go into our gut of a baby are crucial for us being able to digest mother's milk, breast milk, and break those complex proteins and sugars down and then it slowly evolves from there it's a risky business for the first few years getting those microbes right they're not crucial for the immune system for the first year because the mother provides that but they have to slowly build up to that the sort of adult state which happens around four years old so we're all different in the way we start even identical twins they've done some studies of identical when they're born end up quite different because it's it's quite a lot of randomness and chance goes in to that and it's mixed up now because of cesarean sections and and using antibiotics and various other things like this that mess it up but we know that that what we call that initial sowing of the seeds 
is very much part of mammalian childbirth and it and is very important. But the important thing to realize is there's no perfect blueprint of a gut microbiome that everyone has. It's incredibly different. We share 99% of our DNA with each other, but microbiome-wise, we'll only share perhaps 20% of our, our gut microbes and we'll all have lots of unique ones. The obvious question which arises at this point is, if all our biomes are different, why would some things be generally good for us or bad for us and not just specifically good for us or bad for us? I guess it's like taking a garden. You've got some general advice that you know is going to be good in terms of the soil and the sunlight and the watering. That means that most of those plants are going to thrive and conditions that are going to be generally bad for them. And it's only when you get down to the particular species, roses need a bit more alkalinity than others, that you start to get to those details. So I think all of us can learn from the garden analogy that there'll be some level of personalization. But I think in general, just by focusing on you know, the average gut, we can still get a long way further than we are in our very unhealthy state now. When reading and reviewing Tim's latest book, I was struck by his description of how our microbiomes are affected or altered by other events in life. For example, illness. And given the chemical influence in stress, they would also be affected by that too. Many things affect it. The subtlest change in the environment to those gut microbes, whether it's the food they're getting, whether it's the acidity, the alkaline in there, or it's other chemicals, can all upset them. And we don't know exactly how it works, but lots of experiments have shown that, yes, stress and anxiety will influence your gut microbiome, just as we know when you're stressed, you're more likely to get diarrhea or etc. And we know lots of inflammatory diseases have negative effects on the microbiome. We know that depression has an effect on the gut microbiome. And increasing evidence is showing, particularly in the mind, the gut-brain axis, that the importance of the gut microbiome in depressive illness and therefore the importance of diet, it can both be a cause and a consequence. So the classic chicken and egg of feelings and chemicals. Which if you think about food as chemicals, as several hundred thousand different chemicals, it's not really different to how we think about drugs or medicines. They're chemicals and all the neurotransmitters in our brain, which are chemicals. So everything's a, a chemical. We've just dumbed it down to think of food as calories and, and saturated fat and not much else. Well, also, the logic of that is that food is also medicine. Absolutely, yes. It's both poison and medicine. Your book recommends we eat 30 different plant-sourced foods a week from different sorts of plants. How do you construct a discipline necessary to do that? Well, the first thing to realize is it's not as hard as it sounds because we need to change our concept of what a plant is. Oh, plant, that spinach, kale, that sort of green stuff on the plate. I can't possibly find 30 different ones of them. But different coloured carrots that have different chemicals. So for me, a Persian purple carrot is different to an orange carrot. It's got different defence chemicals. That counts. It's a herb. It's a spice. 
so spice mixes, adding the, the roots of plants which have highly concentrated amounts in them will all count. It's nuts, it's seeds. Each nut and each seed have a different composition and therefore count as a different plant. You also got chocolate is a plant. If you have a concentrated form of it, it's a fermented cacao bean and really strong dark chocolate, that counts to me as a plant. Coffee is a plant. Coffee is a, is a health food. It's been shown to reduce heart disease and that's because of its healthy properties, these fermented beans that produce all these helpful chemicals that help our gut microbes. I used to think this is really t difficult, but I've changed my diet to include a whole pot full of nuts and seeds that I have with about 10 of them in, but I just sprinkle on my yogurt in the morning and that's 10 done. I've only got to find another 20. Actually, it's quite fun. You lay a lot of emphasis on the benefits of fermentation and fermented foods. Most people would see that as through certain types of yogurts and so on, but there are lots of other products around at the moment. Why is that so important? Well, we used to think the stomach killed off all the live things in things like yogurt, and that's not true. It's eating live microbes that give us these benefits. If it's proper yogurt, not with artificial flavorings and fake strawberries and things. But we've also got other forms. People forget that artisan cheese, if it's not out of a can or um, it, it doesn't last you know, five years, it, it contains lots of good microbes. That's an important source. Then you've got fermented milks, kefirs, which is like super yogurt, maybe four times as many microbes in kefir as there is in yogurt. Then you've got, is it getting up the sophistication ladder, you're going to kombuchas where you, it's a fermented tea and you've got fungi and yeasts and about 12 microbes. Then you've got kimchi, the Korean national dish, which is a spicy sauerkraut that's got maybe 30 different types of microbe in it, plus fertilizers for your gut. And all the studies show these are beneficial for you, but you have to have them in small regular amounts because they don't last. They just like passengers going through your gut that are just throwing money around, revitalizing the economy. So a once a week blowout on sauerkraut isn't going to do it? No. One small shot of something every day, that's the best way to keep your microbial garden revved up. Do you have yourself any meat or fish in your diet? And what's the reason for where you've gone on those? Well, over the last 10 years, I've sort of waxed and waned on my views on meat and fish. But meat... I have once or possibly twice a month now and fish maybe twice a month. Many people don't eat meat for ethical reasons. That wasn't my number one concern. It was more about health. But uh, more I read about it, eating small amounts of meat, of good quality meat, is not particularly bad for your health. The main reason to not eat beef and lamb at the moment and eat less of all the other ones is actually to reduce climate change. The single most important decision we can make to help climate change is not take less flights on holiday. It's not to get rid of the Range Rover. It is to reduce our meat and dairy intakes. And I think that is really important. Food choice is incredibly important for our health, but also for the planet. But one category of consumables that are very much in Tim's firing line are ultra-processed foods, UPF for short. 
He says the latest research shows that around 60% of energy in meals in the UK comes from this type of food. And a UPF-heavy diet is more associated with lower income and educational levels. In other words, the poorer in our society. And we are the worst in Europe by quite a long way, followed by Germany. The Mediterranean countries have the lowest levels. So Portugal is around 10% and the other Mediterranean countries just above that. So That's a dramatic difference. I mean, that's not a small difference. It's not a difference around the margin. It's not even a big difference. It's a huge difference. And only the US is higher than us. They're at over 60%. And we're catching up with them. So what exactly are ultra-processed foods and why are they so bad for our health? It's foods that are made from extracts of other foods rather than the whole foods themselves. And they're put together in a chemical industrial way so that they then finally resemble a food again. But it's using the extracted, highly refined flour made from some plant or everything stripped off it except the bare essentials. Cornflakes, for example, it's made to look like it has some sort of natural cornflake, but that corn has been so blasted, pressurised, treated with other ingredients that it has none of its natural goodness. Everything has to be added back as poor quality vitamins made in some overseas factory. Now, is the problem with that not just the opportunity cost? In other words, by eating that, you're not eating something that would be better. But is it also the case that these foods, firstly, don't contain things which help the microbiome? They don't feed the bacteria. And secondly, that they sometimes contain things which actually make the microbiome worse. Absolutely. And there's also a strange thing we still don't understand that eating identical meals, one ultra-processed, one homemade, identical calories, the ultra-processed one will make you overeat by about 10% mm. regularly. So people who buy ultra-processed foods, often the poorest in our society, are overeating unknown to them because just the nature of the food either it's so easily absorbed it doesn't cause appetite signals or it has this effect on the gut microbes right in a moment i'll be putting some quick fire questions to tim myth busting some food types if you like but first a message from one of my colleagues i'm fiona hamilton the crime and security editor of The Times. I cover breaking stories from terrorist attacks to the world of organised crime, and I love delving into what's really going on in policing. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tim, we're now going to have the quick fire question round. And these are questions that have been asked by our producers when they knew that you were coming in, people that work on the show. So, are things like corn beyond meat a good alternative for people that are trying to cut out meat for health reasons? Or does the fact that they may be processed negate the whole thing? It depends what you're replacing with what. If you're replacing a perfect grass-fed steak with these alternatives, it's unlikely to be beneficial for you. If you're doing it for the planet, then it is beneficial. If you're replacing a poor quality frozen meat lasagna with a an alternate like this, that is going to be better for your health. But th- this whole field is moving. They're improving rapidly. I'm seeing the second generation of these alternatives. They're going to be much better. Right. So the answer is maybe wait until the next generation comes along because they're going to be good. Yes. Uh, okay. Is coffee good or bad for you? Coffee is marvellous for you. Um, <laughs> it's good for your microbes and it's good for your heart. Red wine. Glass a day, good, bad? Good for most people. If you like alcohol and you like drinking wine. Okay. So a person who works on the show wants to know if they can get through all this without eating lentils. Absolutely. Plenty of alternatives to lentils. Many other beans and legumes. And yes, I discovered a myriad of other healthy plants. Yeah, but you know what? I suspect that you quite like lentils. I do, but not more than other stuff. And I love discovering new beans, for example. So yeah, you get into it. And it's not about eating one thing anyway. If you've got 10 different things on your plate, you don't worry about if there's a small bit of lentils in there. (laughs) That's true. Get over it. (laughs) get over those lentils uh, advice so will the producer who's out through the glass at the moment as we're recording this says does fasting help well it depends what you mean by fasting but time restricted eating which means you have an extended fast overnight definitely helps your gut health and we've just done a giant study with the the zoe health study on a hundred thousand people saying it is of great benefit in terms of your metabolism and your, actually improves energy and mood. So I think everyone should be eating less at night and extending the time they're not eating. Right. And here's an absolute classic. Can you tell us about bread and fibre and bloating? What kind of bread is the best kind of bread? It's one that is made with lots of fibre, with grains, with rye, rye in it, that has a high fibre to, to sugar ratio. Most breads in the UK have very high sugar, very little fibre, 
are not good for you. So all breads are different, and I think that's that's one of the big lessons that we need I, to learn. I think one of the uh, this might be getting at also is the kind of notion which a lot of people have that they're allergic to bread in some kind of way, that bread is causing them difficulty. You see sort of people who are supposedly wheat intolerant and so on. Most people who think they have a wheat allergy or gluten allergy don't. It's 10 times more people than actually have it. But what they probably are is intolerant of the higher carbohydrate amounts in breads, the sugar rush you get that makes you feel a bit sick afterwards, the sugar peaks and then the dips afterwards. So I think trying to find a really the best bread possible, having a small amount of it, uh, is is the way to test yourself on that properly. Bread's been given a, a bad rap, but all breads are not the same, and we need to start looking at the quality of the, of the breads we're eating rather than just because it looks brown. It must be healthy, and that's often not the case. Finally, this section, supplements, do they work? For healthy people, supplements uh, don't work in general, no. There's no evidence that they do. The best way to have your supplement is by eating lots of different plants. And, and finally, Tim, given that it's the beginning of January and I might want to start doing one thing tomorrow, what would you recommend? It's important to do something easy and sustainable that everyone can take home. And so I think the idea is to think of something that you are likely to want to do. And one of them would be to have a fermented food every day. It doesn't have to be kefir. It could be any of those others I, I've mentioned. Making a small nudge for the year is really important. I think it could be trying to eat a new plant or vegetable every day, adding to your list. It could be trying to have a couple of alcohol-free days, could be increasing the fasting time overnight. But above all, it's you know, a resolve to, to learn more about food, and so you understand food and your body better. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Professor Tim Spector, food author and epidemiologist. A link to his latest book is in the description notes of this podcast. The producer today was Will Rowe. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. See you again soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.